0: So after 15 years in government, we go into this conference with a a, a very strong position and with a great deal of optimism.
1: That was Deputy First Minister John Swinney, and we'll hear more from him later in the show. Hello and welcome to The Stooshy, the Scottish politics podcast from DC Thompson that helps you be better briefed. I'm Andy Phillip and on this episode I'll be joined by Adele Merson and Justin Bowie to examine and explain the last week in Scottish politics. Conference season continues with the SNP in Aberdeen making their first in-person appearance since before the pandemic. Nicola Sturgeon goes into the the three-day gathering with a lot on her plate. Public services are stretched, the First Minister is regularly on the spot over NHS performance and infrastructure concerns are mounting. Ms. Sturgeon is also one year away from her proposed date for a second independence referendum. Before summer we were promised details on currency, economy and all the rest. Much of the big stuff though is still a bit open-ended. However, chaos in the Conservative ranks has shifted the landscape, pushed Labour far into the lead in England and could end up with the SNP sweeping the boards again in Scotland. With all that in mind reporter Rachel Amory caught up with Nicola Sturgeon's right-hand man, John Swinney. He's the Deputy First Minister. He's currently standing in as Finance Chief while Kate Forbes is on maternity leave. He's also a Perthshire MSP with plenty of local issues to keep him busy. Rachel began with a glance at the Tory carnage in the rearview mirror as she asked John Swinney how he's preparing for the SNP conference.
0: We, We do go into the conference in a good condition with a lot of optimism. I think anyone looking at the polls just now shouldn't be surprised by them because the Conservatives have just inflicted an absolutely enormous body blow on every household in the country with the damage that was done by the mini-budget and the financial uncertainty that's been created as a consequence, which is pushing up interest rates and frankly, inflicting financial misery on people around the country. People, I think, look at the the SNP, the Scottish Government, they see the way in which we are acting always in the interests of people in Scotland, and I think that's reflected in the polls. So after 15 years in government, the SNP goes into this conference, our first in-person conference for three years. We're all absolutely looking forward to being together again in Aberdeen. Um, We go into this conference with a, a, a very strong position and with a great deal of optimism. Well,
2: we're one year away from a potential independence referendum, but we still don't have a lot of the detail at the moment. I understand the legal challenge is set to hit the Supreme Court again the day after Nicola Sturgeon's speech to conference. When can we expect to get a more detailed plan of what independence might look like?
0: Over the summer, we set out a significant amount of information about the the nature and the characteristics of an independent Scotland and what the process of independence would be like. Obviously, there's um, a, 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 a case to be heard at the Supreme Court and it's not appropriate for me to go into that. It's for the Supreme Court to to look at all of those details. Um, but we've got a whole range of material to set out the basis of an independent Scotland. And I think when people are exploring these questions, they should look at other countries and see the way in which other countries are using and exercising their powers of independence to make a difference to the lives of uh, the people in their community. So, you know, when I look at the terrible experience of the last two weeks or so with the Conservative budget, that's been an illustration of how the lack of independent powers in Scotland has been used in a way that's damaged the people of Scotland and damaged our interests. So uh, we've got an opportunity to do something about that, and that's about making sure that people in Scotland are able to take our own decisions based on what matters to the people of this country. We wouldn't, no finance minister in Scotland would have made the decisions that the UK chancellor made in the face of a cost of living crisis and because a a Scottish finance minister would be closely connected with the communities and following the values and the aspirations of people within Scotland.
2: But when would we see more of that detail? I mean, is it going to be before Christmas? Will it be a few weeks after conference? Will it be into next year?
0: Yeah, as I say, we've set out some of that material already and we'll set out more of it uh, in the course of the uh, the autumn uh, and the period ahead of us.
2: Now, I know you mentioned finances there. I mean, we've seen this week what even a small fluctuation in tax rates can do to the economy independence is going to be a much bigger financial impact so what do you have to tell people who are worried about that other than it's going to be better under independence because it's a huge financial impact it's going to have isn't it
0: the first thing i'd say is that any country has got to follow and believe in uh, financial sustainability and the exercise of fiscal responsibility. You know, I've been France Minister in Scotland. I was France Minister for nine years I'm back in that role for a temporary period while Kate Forbes is on maternity leave. And throughout all my time as a France Minister, I've always believed in fiscal responsibility. Well, fiscal responsibility was thrown out the window by the UK Chancellor two weeks ago and as a consequence of throwing that fiscal responsibility out of the window, mortgage rates, the value of pension funds, and the uh, the, the value of the assets of people, the and bed to the country was undermined. So nobody can tell me that the United Kingdom is a safe place for people's money. Nobody can tell me the United Kingdom is a place of fiscal responsibility and fiscal stability any longer because huge negative impacts have been felt by people in this country as a consequence of decisions taken in London. So Scotland is fundamentally a wealthy country. We are an energy-rich country. We are rich in natural resources. We've got a talented population. We've got strong universities. And we've got a very dynamic company base. That's the basis that any country would want to have and we, to, 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 upon which to build a future. And then if you add to that a culture of fiscal responsibility where we're investing in our public services in a sustainable way, that can give people confidence in the strength of an independent Scotland. But if people are looking around today at the contrast between the possibility of an independent Scotland and what could be achieved in contrast to the instability and the uncertainty of the United Kingdom, I'm not surprised more people, as the polls are showing, are choosing independence.
2: Well, let's move away from independence um, to infrastructure. Uh, the A9 runs right through your constituency of Perthshire North. When will people see the A9 and the A96 jewelled as promised?
0: Well, people are seeing the improvements been made to the, the A9 already. Um, in the course of the last couple of years, uh, my constituents have had a significant enhancement to the infrastructure by the completion of the Lunkerty to passive Burnham stretch of the A9. And that's really improved the A9 very significantly. There's a whole series of other projects that have got to take their course and um, they will be taken forward once they've all completed their statutory processes. Some of them are a bit further on than others. Um, and we've got to do it in, um, in, in pieces, as we have done already. We've done a number of stretches of dueling of the A9. We've done the Lunkerty Pass of Burnham that I talked about. But We've also done um, the Concrete Dalradi stretch. Um, we, we've undertaken improvements at, at Balne again into the bargain. So there's a, a whole range of different pieces of work. It'll have to be worked through over time. It's going to be done as quickly as we possibly can do. Of course, on the A96, um, we've got to undertake some of the uh, analysis to consider the, um, uh, the sustainability of the road projects alongside our climate objectives and our climate aspirations and that will, of, But of course, there are parts of the A96 that are now the subject of active development in terms of dueling, particularly around about the stretches on the outskirts of Inverness and the Nairn Bypass.
2: And so the A96, it, it, by the time this is all finished, it will be dueled in its entirety?
0: Well, that's you know, the government's got that commitment, but we've also got a commitment to explore uh, the compatibility of developments of that type with our climate ambitions and that's the work that we will carry forward and which has been set out to parliament in the in previous programs for government.
2: So if, if the climate obligations here have a conflict of interest there with duelling the A96 is there a chance that it will not be duelled in its, in its um, entirety?
0: Well that's to prejudge the analysis that's being undertaken so we just need to allow that to take its course and make judgments accordingly based on the information that comes out of that analysis.
2: Now, what about land reform? That's another issue that you're going to be talking about at this conference. What can people expect to see from the government in the next few years on this, particularly around land ownership and green layers?
0: What the, our objectives in relation to land reform have been to encourage the broadening of land ownership around, around Scotland, to make sure that land as such an important and valuable asset can be used to strengthen the future of communities. And I think we've seen some really good examples around the country that the government has supported about community ownership that's given great opportunities and great prospects for communities to thrive. So all of these measures have contributed significantly to um, uh, encouraging the process of increasing the population in local areas, increasing the um, opportunities there are for the development of new business ventures and to enable the creation of of thriving communities in in rural parts of Scotland. So we're you know we'll be considering at the conference how best we can take forward approaches of that type to make sure that the land of Scotland can be used to the maximum effect for the benefit of people in our country and to broaden the access that people have to the utilisation of land as a great asset for the development of the country.
2: Now, this conference is being held in Aberdeen. People in the North-East have been calling for a bigger, more expanded rail network. Is that pie in the sky, or or can people in the North-East really rely on the SNP to deliver on
0: this? I think people need to look around the country and see the developments that we've undertaken. So, you know, in the North East, for example, people were crying out for an Aberdeen-Western peripheral route to bypass the city of Aberdeen and improve connectivity right up the northeast East of Scotland coast. They've waited for the Conservative Party to deliver it, the Labour Party to deliver it, the Liberals to deliver it. They all had a chance in government and they never did it. Well, the SNP did. So the biggest piece of infrastructure enhancement in the northeast of Scotland, and it was the SNP that delivered the goods for the northeast. If you then look at rail connections around the country, the SNP has been the vanguard of expanding the rail network. We completed the Airdrie to Bathgate line. We extended um, the, um, the, uh, the, 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 rebuilt essentially the Borders Railway, connecting a part of Scotland that was not served by the rail network um, since the the beaching cuts. Now that's actually a direct parallel to the aspirations that I know a number of my colleagues in the northeast, Gillian Martin, Jackie Dunbar, Carn uh, Adam are pressing us for in the northeast of Scotland, and that's about rail connections into parts of the country that are not served by the rail network. So I think there's some really exciting possibilities there Obviously, there's a lot of hard work has got to be put in place to make sure these projects can come about and they will be expensive. But what people can see is the SNP has been working to expand the rail network in Scotland, eh, to open new lines, to improve connectivity. We've got a new line in Courier Country as well, eh, going into Leavenmouth that is under construction just now. So there is an expansion of the rail network and I think it's right for us to consider proposals such as the developments into the North East.
1: That was Rachel Amory speaking with Deputy First Minister John Swinney. You'll have heard a, a focus on the big picture there, but also a lot more on the day job, the roads, the railways, land reform and other hot topics. We've been looking at the highlights of the SNP conference agenda. and There's plenty in there to get people talking. Stushy listeners will of course know we aim to reach the parts of the country that others leave behind and there's a lot that could do with more attention. Adele's been going through the paperwork so you don't have to. You'll be there in Aberdeen along with me and Justin over the weekend. What can people expect?
3: Uh, There's actually as you say quite a lot coming up that will be of sort of specific regional interest to two areas north of the central belt you could say. So the conference is kicking off with an item on Northeast rail links. There's an ongoing, non-political campaign, I should say. The campaign for Northeast rail. They are hoping to sort of spark a rail revival in the northeast by reinstating rail links between the city and sort of Fraser- uh, Peterhead, and Fraserburgh. Uh, they were recently successful in a funding bid, though we still don't know how much the Scottish government's actually given them. I don't know. If that might come out at some point, but. Uh, they're hoping to bring forward the plans for new feasibility studies. So delegates at the conference will basically just be asked to back the premise that these rail links are re-established, which um, would be quite popular in the northeast, I think. Yeah. And there's other items on, as you'd expect, being in such an oil and gas related place. There's a lot of discussion on the move away from fossil fuels. There's multiple sort of fringe events and things in the main agenda on this. Uh, items on carbon capture, land reform which is also a big one in some of our rural communities um, The Scottish government's currently consulting on their plans for a land reform bill but they've come up against quite a bit of criticism that their proposals don't go far enough mm-hmm. so it will be interesting to see because the the motion put forward is calling for sort of more radical proposals such as a cap on the amount of land that can be owned and as you would expect there's big national items such as uh, Scottish independence and there's items on abortion, such as the buffer zone legislation. So it's a very packed and and varied agenda, I would say, having combed through it.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, you you mentioned transport a lot there. Um, The SNP have not got their troubles to seek when it comes to ferries at the moment. But Justin, it's not just domestic issues that are coming up. They're also looking at more international outlook as well. What else is coming up?
4: Well, one interesting motion will see the SMP welcoming the reopening of a ferry link between Rosseif and Belgium. This was a previously existing line, but it was scrapped for as a passenger service in 2010, and then scrapped as a freight service um, just back in 2018 there. I suppose for the SMP, if this was to be reopened, it would seen, be seen as a bit of a boost. Given all the bad ferry news, it might be seen as quite a kind of welcome development in that sense. It's been heavily pushed by local politicians, not just from the SNP, but from multiple sides. There's obviously a tourism benefit there if it's easier to get from Scotland into mainland Europe. I suppose there's also a trade benefit as well in addition to that. And from an SNP perspective, they obviously want to see Scotland be a part of the EU post-independence, were that to happen. And if that were to hypothetically be the case, they're going to want stronger links with Europe and stronger links with the EU, definitely.
1: Yeah, and well, as I mentioned this just there as well, but let's not forget the, the independence elephant in the room. Always, I mean, polls are, are still stubbornly stuck roughly in the middle, perhaps still tilting to a no vote. There's a, there's a big obstacle still standing in the way as well in the shape of the UK government. Uh, Liz Truss has picked up where Boris Johnson and Theresa May left off before her. Uh, And the day after Nicola Sturgeon's curtain closing speech on Monday, the Supreme Court's going to get its teeth into the legal argument about holding a referendum at all. Uh, Justin, you've been following the process and I am confident you can boil it down so I can actually understand what's happening here. What is this court battle trying to settle?
4: Well, for a bit of background, this obviously all goes back to June when Nicola Sturgeon announced her plans to hold another independence referendum next October as you mentioned, the big problem is Nicola Sturgeon can't just decide to do that. And the UK government have dug their heels in. They do not want it to happen. That was both the case under both Boris Johnson and under Liz Truss. So Scotland's Lord Advocate, and the top law officer in Scotland, has deferred this to the UK Supreme Court, essentially the highest court in the land. They are, I suppose, essentially going to rule on whether it is legal for the Scottish Parliament to legislate to hold a referendum There are a lot of complex legal arguments about this, but if you want to boil it down to its most simple elements, it's both sides essentially arguing their position in court. The SNP say they have a mandate for a referendum. They did win a pro-independence majority in the Parliament last year when you add in the Greens. The UK government, by contrast, obviously say that it's essentially their job to decide whether Scotland can have a referendum or not. It's not up to the Scottish Parliament to decide that. The UK government wanted the Supreme Court to ignore the case entirely. They said it was just obvious that it should be the decision, but the Supreme Court are going to hear the case, and I suspect there will be a lot of complicated legal arguments about you know, whether this should be allowed to happen, but at its most simple level, it is one side saying that Scotland should be allowed to hold a vote, and the other side is saying that Scotland should not be able to hold a vote and that the matter was previously settled. Uh, I knew that was possible. Thank you for that. I think... It's clear
1: as it's clear as day now, and, and it, obviously, like you say, it's going to be a a really interesting day in court. That one we mentioned Liz Trust earlier there as well. It'd be remiss not to devote a little attention to the. I think I'm being fair here by saying the complete carnage of the Conservative conference. Um, one week after the the budget sent financial markets into chaos. The Chancellor changed his mind on the top-rate tax cut. He plunged the Scottish Tory leader, Douglas Ross, back into the realms of flip-flops and U-turns. Um, he now backs the U-turn on the policy he previously wanted the SNP to copy, just to keep everyone up to speed. Adele, can it get much worse? How are the polls reacting to all of this?
3: Yeah, I don't think the the speech has, has done much to, uh, the speech has done much to all really concerns, really. Um, ever since the fiscal event, which now feels ages ago, but was actually quite recently, uh, support has just um, plunged for the Tories. I think we've had around, uh, last check was 10 polls showing Labour with an average 25 point lead over the Tories. Particularly in Scotland, there was an interesting poll for the Times by YouGov, which showed similar trends of the support for the Tories sort of tanking. Um, They're even saying, you know, the Tories could see their Scottish representation at Westminster disappear again um, and that their tally at Holyrood could be its lowest since, I think, 2011. So not encouraging signs for the party north of the border. I don't believe there's much sign of SNP voters switching from SNP to Labour, though. So that would be something interesting to watch for. Mm -hmm. And in terms of personal popularity ratings, I mean, Truss's popularity think one of the polls I saw was about minus 70 which is you know really down there it's it's I think almost as low if not uh, sorry it's just a point ahead of Boris Johnson's approval rating in his final weeks of Downing Street and you think of all the sh- shenanigans if you want to give it that word that went on in, in the final months uh, is quite really quite incredible for someone's popularity to be that low in their first few weeks when they're you know should be fresh yeah. to the electorate and have not annoyed them or upset them too much
1: yeah there's uh, yeah the polls have been pretty wild haven't they have bumped into green leader patrick harvey yesterday in the scottish parliament who was looking rather delighted with himself because there's another conference coming up which we will get to in next week's stushy um where the green party will be in dundee and they've they saw in one of the polls that came out there was a scottish sample which suggested that they were had they had drawn level with the conservatives I mean, it was Patrick Harvey that looked more surprised than anyone, but he was clearly delighted because he has to go into that conference um, telling his members that it was a good idea to go into uh, a loose coalition with the, the SNP and the Scottish government as well. So there is the sands are shifting all over the place by the looks of things, but um, whether that means anything without a general election on the horizon and without any actual concrete sort of path to an independence referen- a referendum either, it's um, perhaps all academic and you know, things will just continue to to move up and down. Well, we've looked ahead, but uh, there were still a lot of news lines swirling around in the week um, since we last convened here. So let's, let's take a closer look at the weekend review across the fertile news patches of the Courier and the Press and Journal.
3: So just like I've discussed in previous StuShi episodes, the NHS was sort of front and centre of First Minister's questions again this week. In particular, a, both Anna Sarwar and Douglas Ross were putting to the First Minister's sort of personal experiences of various constituents and uh, patients across Scotland and some of the uh, just frankly unacceptable experiences that they've had recently. Uh, I looked at there was one there's one particular example that was of interest to in the northeast. It was a 73 year old woman who waited more than four hours in agony with a broken hip. So they called for an ambulance, and I believe we're told it could be a while. It was over four hours of waiting, and she was in like a great deal of pain and shock. And so they decided her 78 year old husband and some neighbors I think got her into a taxi, and uh, when they turned up. They were told they probably made the right decision because they're a patient that had been waiting for three hours in one of the ambulances to get into A&E. And I know NHS Grampian has put out several statements in the last week or so about the, the pressures that they're under. So it's obvious that the health service locally and across Scotland, wider Scotland, is really struggling just now. There was also, you know, a Press and Journal report was raised at the First Minister's questions. That was on the Ambulance Times and I believe Ambulance Turnaround Times at ARI are now at a... Record high, so yeah. I imagine it was uncomfortable for the first minister to to listen and have those experiences yeah. put to her.
1: Yeah, it was quite um, kind of unremitting. There was about twenty minutes starting with Douglas Ross. Um, I mean, it was actually quite interesting to watch. It. A completely casual observer would have thought that the Conservatives were maybe on the front foot and and Labour, and it was the SNP on the back foot. When actually, you know, outside of first minister's questions, it's quite the reverse, and that um, Douglas Ross had. Uh, he, he went on a on a on a, a subject which is is easy to to sort of block the party politicking because obviously Nicholas Sturgeon has to respond by saying well Scotland's got a better performance than England and that always riles up the benches a little bit and but then Douglas Ross was able to point out his own experience which is another thing that you've been looking at because um sort of just slightly further afield than Aberdeen the the good folk of of Murray are still waiting for their maternity service to get up to speed. and uh, You've been looking at that as well. It's a story we keep returning to. What's what's going on there? What's the latest?
3: Uh, the latest is we do uh, another update on that situation. There's been many updates over the, the last few years, but this one is uh, campaigners hope will give a bit more clarity in terms of the longer term timescales for fully restoring maternity services to Dr. Gray's Hospital in Elgin. The end of the month is when the statement's due to be happening. Uh, the health secretary is due to be giving giving his update. But uh, the government has committed to giving a timescale, I believe, by the end of the year. Yeah. So how much detail this update is going to have, I'm not too sure. We could still be waiting in a, another two months for the level of information that campaigners mm. would really like to see. Because right now I think they feel there's a fair bit happening on the short-term solution, which is to expand um, maternity care provision at uh, Rakemore Hospital in Inverness but there's a lot of concerns about that that's a a whole other separate issue to be honest about up north has you know their own problems um, and clinicians up there have made the point that they think it's going to become overcrowded up there so I think campaigners are just expecting more than what they're being given uh, quite rightly I mean as we've covered in the past there's women giving birth at the side of the road on at least two occasions that we know of this year so it really is, uh, I can understand why yeah. it's causing a lot of anxiety among women there.
1: Yeah, and anyone who wants to to hear more on that um, can go back a few episodes on the, the episode list from just before summer, I think, where we had a great uh, interview with a campaigner for the Murray Maternity Group and a big special episode all on that. Justin, you've been looking at another health-related uh, problem, the inquiry into what happened in the pandemic basically but it's it's really hit the buffers hasn't it
4: yes definitely um earlier on in the week i covered the fact that um lady pool a scottish supreme court judge who was set to chair the scottish covid inquiry or sorry she had been chairing the scottish covid inquiry she had stepped down from the role that obviously prompted some concerns these inquiries often tend to be quite long as it is you know it's, it's an inquiry that's massive in scope it's looking at, I suppose, almost all aspects of Scotland's response to the pandemic, from things like lockdown measures to ensuring the country was prepared in advance and then, you know, to how the government managed it in hospitals day to day. So it was a bit of a surprise that Lady Poole was stepping down from that role. And even though the Scottish government has tried to offer some reassurance that um, she would be replaced, I imagine for a lot of families, it's a major concern that there's inevitably going to be delays there. And I suppose this is a bit of a bump in the road. Um, Rachel, our colleague, spoke to Alan Whiteman, whose mum Helen died in May 2020 after she contracted COVID. And he was actually quite scathing about Lady Peel's work in the inquiry so far. He felt that she'd been lacking any empathy for the bereaved families involved in the process and that the meeting with um, their family had just been a bit of a box ticking exercise. I-, I suppose with these inquiries, often as, I-, I can imagine it's quite difficult to manage in the sense that. COVID and how I suppose it was reported and how, how it's managed could be quite clinical at times. You know, we had lockdown decisions often made very much on the basis of data. So no doubt, passing data and interpreting how decisions were made is going to be data-led at times. But at the same time, you do definitely need to have a bit of a personal touch when it comes to dealing with people who had horrendous experiences throughout 2020 and 2021 as well, when the panic pandemic was still going on. So it's not a good sign that the inquiry doesn't seem to have gotten off to the best start in that regard. You know, there, there are major concerns already. Yeah. And we now have a process where go- we're going to need to find someone else to chair that and that could lead to inevitable delays down the line.
1: Yeah. Yeah, because the, the other thing that came out, of course, was that uh, the legal team had had gone, but that wasn't announced until um, it was sort of pulled out, really, after Lady Poole had, had, had decided to quit. And meanwhile, the UK public inquiry is is going ahead and the irony being of course that the Scottish one was only set up in the first place because there was a perception that the UK one wouldn't focus enough on Scotland which has got you know very specific devolved responsibility for health Um, When we might end up with um, an inability to get another judge to to even lead one according to some lawyers who are worried about it. Anyway that is it for this week thanks to Adele Merson, Justin Bowie, Rachel Amory guest John Swinney, producer Marvin McIntyre and of course to you for listening. We'll be back next week with more but until then and even after then, pick up or log on to The Courier and The Press and Journal and all of our news brands so that you can be better briefed.
4: The STUSHI is the politics podcast from DC Thompson, designed to help you understand the implications of what happens in Holyrood, Westminster, and our communities so that you can be better briefed. Don't miss an episode by following The STUSHI today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you know folks like you who want to understand politics in Scotland a little better, suggest they tune in or follow STUSHI Scott on Twitter and Facebook. And stay even more up to date on local and Scottish news by subscribing to The Courier or Press and Journal, where you can get one month of unlimited access for just £1. Check the episode notes for details and terms.